the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Dave King Engineering Today's program. Coming up in the second hour, a conversation with James Rosen, author of Scalia, Rise to Greatness. Covers the period before Scalia became a U.S. Supreme Court Justice from 1936 to 1986. The book published by Regnery coming up in the second hour of the program. We'll also reflect on the abortion pill on a collision course set for the Supreme Court of the United States. And we lost a dear friend and ministry leader here in the Portland area. We'll tell you more about that later in the second hour as well. First, taking a look at some of the day's news and headlines. National Security Council spokesman Admiral John Kirby retired was once again at the White House podium Monday to respond to sensitive breaking news and caused controversy with his response to questions about highly classified defense material being leaked on social media sites this week. Kirby previously drew criticism from high-profile veterans like retired uh, recon Marine Chad Robineau, who torched his assessment of the Afghanistan withdrawal report last week. Well, the new leaked material, first reported by the New York Times on Friday, seemingly contains intelligence on China, the Middle East, Israel's spy agency, Mossad, and U.S. support for Ukraine's military. Former Trump White House counselor uh, Kellyanne Conway conceded that Kirby has a tough job in being the ombudsman in such instances, but said he sounded like someone who was less so trying to conceal sensitive developments and more so a spokesperson who had little tangible information to give. There's a man long on words today, very short on information. Well, Conway credited the press corps uh, writ large for pressing hard for information following such an unprecedented leak, but added that the administration is the same entity along with the uh, uh, the party who continued to condemn former President Trump for the discovery of classified documents at his Palm Beach home while they have uh, trouble keeping their own dossiers from being leaked. Well, this, um, she went on to say, is a troubling development. Kirby uh, also fielded questions about Biden's upcoming trip to Northern Ireland, where he reported uh, to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement of 1998 that largely brought an end to violence involving the Irish Republican Army and opposing groups in places like Derry and Belfast. Not exactly a hotbed of uh, controversy at this moment, given the issues facing our country. The April 10th agreement formally ended the troubles, as they were referred to, the decade-long Uh, Oft-violent conflict between the proverbial orange and green unionists, largely Ulster Protestants, loyal to the British crown, and nationalists, largely Roman Catholic, loyal to the Irish government. Kirby said Biden finds the trip important in commemorating the peace deal, along with the fact that he has a personal connection to the Emerald Isle. Northern Irish authorities uh, reportedly on high alert for potential violence during the president's visit after demonstrators firebombed law enforcement in Derry and Londonderry. Uh, On Monday, uh, on uh, America Reports, Conway also criticized how the president appeared to be snubbed by America's oldest ally uh, after French President uh, Emmanuel Macron. He sought to counsel the um, 
uh, sought the counsel rather of Chinese President Xi Jinping in terms of the Ukraine war. Uh, he too caused controversy when he said France cannot become a vassal in the Sino-American clash over Taiwan. Kirby was the likely choice to field these questions about the leaked Pentagon information because the answers could not be um, stuck to the press secretary, uh, which the spokesperson regularly appeals, appears to read from uh, scripts verbatim. So that um, a pressing story earlier today. Meanwhile, the Heritage Foundation's oversight project is suing the Justice Department for communications related to the department's failure to apply federal law against far-left protests at the Supreme Court justices' homes. Well, the suit follows Attorney General Merrick Garland's admission that it is a federal crime to protest outside a judge's home with the intent of influencing that judge. Garland has not enforced that law, though both Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin and former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan requested... Uh, that he do so. And in March, Garland claimed that the U.S. Marshals on scene make the decision whether to make the arrest. Since June 17th of last year, the Oversight Project has filed multiple Freedom of Information Act requests seeking records related to the enforcement of the statute and protests at the Supreme Court justices' private residences. When the Department of Justice didn't properly acknowledge these requests or provide the requested information, Heritage's Oversight Project filed a lawsuit seeking judicial relief. Attorney General Garland told the Senate that the decision to allow violations of 1507 to continue was made by the U.S. Marshals. Mike Howell, director of the Oversight Project, uh, said, I don't think that's true. And it was then. uh, And if it was, then why are they unlawfully withholding the records from us? Well, Oversight's requests include all records related to 18 U.S.C. 1507. And protests, picketing, parades, demonstrations, occupations, sit-ins, and any other form of protest at the residences of the Chief Justice of the United States or Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. In January, the Daily Signal spoke with several U.S. Marshals who said that the activists are not breaking the law since they're not on the justices' property, merely the sidewalk. It was pointed out that the language of the code specifically says in or near. Now, if this was an abortion facility, there would be no question about uh, the uh, parameter. But the marshals still said that the activists were within the law since they were on the sidewalk. The authorities also repeatedly mentioned the First Amendment and free speech and said that the activists had the right to demonstrate as long as they were within the law. But if you are praying outside an abortion clinic, that's another matter. That's my editorial comment. Legal and judicial experts say that since the marshals report to the attorney general, they're doing the bidding of the Justice Department. These groups are activists, which include individuals such as Sadie Coons, Melissa Barlow and others. Uh, They've been protesting at the homes of the Supreme Court justices since May. The leak of the draft opinion indicating that Roe versus Wade would soon be overturned. That unprecedented leak, which sparked protests throughout the country, attacks on scores of pro-life centers and faith-based institutions nationwide, and even an assassination attempt against Justice Brett Kavanaugh made the justices targets for assassination, according to Justice Samuel Alito. It was a shock because nothing like that had happened in the past. Uh, Alito said of the leak in October during the remarks at a heritage event. So it certainly changed the atmosphere at the court for the remainder of the last term. The leak also made those of us who were thought to be in the majority in support of overruling Roll and Casey targets for assassination because it gave people a rational reason to think they could prevent them uh, that from happening by killing one of us. 
The investigation, the inquiry continues. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In the second hour of today's program, we'll take a look at one of the Supreme Court justices, now deceased, Scalia. Rise to greatness. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Biden administration involved itself in the raid of former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home, despite reports that its officials were stunned to find out about the news on social media, according to the group America First Legal. They obtained uh, internal government documents related to the raid through a Freedom of Information Act request. Well, the evidence further suggests that the officials at the administration in the executive office of the president and the Department of Justice unlawfully abused their power and then lied about it to the American people. That's what Reed D. Rubenstein, America First Legal Senior Counsel and Director of Oversight and Investigation, said in a post on social media today. This government, it seems, acknowledges no limits on its power to harass, intimidate, and silence its political opponents. Well, its comments come after a Freedom of Information Act request by the America First Legal found the FBI initially obtained access to Trump records through a special access report from the Biden White House. The new information confirms uh, reporting from August when the NARA um, acting head Deborah Wall wrote a letter to Trump's attorney alluding to the administration's involvement. Well, records show that John Laster, the archives official responsible for administering all access requests for presidential records, was involved in the request despite the archives previously claiming that it had not been involved in the Department of Justice investigation. On the 21st of October of last year, acting archivist Wall uh, wrote to, to then-ranking member James Comer and Jim Jordan claiming NARA, that's the National Archives, received the 15 boxes from President Trump on the 18th of January of that year and then discovered that they had contained classified national security information. Well, shortly after the discovery, the archives uh, consulted with its Office of Inspector General, which operates independently of the uh, archives. As the Department of Justice has disclosed publicly in court filings, the um, they subsequently referred the matter to the Department of Justice in February of 22, according to America First Legal. If the OIG acted independently in making a referral to the FBI, then Mr. Laster would not have involved himself in the FBI's review of the 15 boxes in his capacity as the director of the White House Liaison Division, responsible for all access requests for presidential records. Well, according to America First Legal, the special access statute authorizes special access requests to an incumbent president only when the records in question are needed for the conduct of current business of the White House. Providing documents to the Department of Justice for purposes of a criminal investigation is not the current business of the White House, the organization argues. Well, the August letter from the uh, from Wall to Trump attorney Evan Corcoran also seemingly hinted at President Biden's involvement, quoting, NARA informed the Department of Justice about that discovery, which prompted the department to ask the president to request that NARA provide the FBI with access to the boxes at issue so the FBI and others in the intelligence community could examine them, Wall wrote. The counsel to the president has informed me that in light of the particular circumstances presented here, President Biden defers to my determination in consultation with the assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel regarding whether or not I should uphold the former president's purported protective assertion of executive privilege. Again, the argument is that the Biden administration officials were involved 
and the Mar-a-Lago raid despite claiming otherwise. The FBI gained access to Trump documents through a White House special access request. Now, where that goes or what it might mean moving forward, you can decide for yourselves. Well, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, speaking of the former President Trump, on Tuesday filed a federal lawsuit against Representative Jim Jordan, alleging that the Republican lawmaker is trying to wage a campaign of intimidation over his prosecution of former President Donald Trump. In his lawsuit, the Democrat D.A. said that he's taking legal action in response to an unprecedentedly brazen and unconstitutional attack by members of Congress on an ongoing New York state criminal prosecution and investigation of former President Donald Trump. Bragg is asking the judge to invalidate subpoenas that Jordan, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, has or plans to issue as part of an investigation of Brad's handling of the Trump case. On recent weeks, the Judiciary Committee issued a subpoena seeking testimony from a former prosecutor, Mark Pomerantz, who previously oversaw the Trump investigation. The committee has also sought documents and testimony about the case from Bragg and his office. Bragg has rejected those requests, and um, the lawsuit has been filed. Now, two federal agencies who actually have jurisdiction over this case declined to move forward. Um, And Mr. Bragg, who is a a state district attorney, does not have federal jurisdiction. So there are some questions about whether or not he has standing or authority. And it continues. Well, the left, as Dennis Prager is uh, wont to say, ruins everything it touches. Some of that ruin comes via weaponization of institutions. And there are a few things more dangerous to liberty than weaponizing the federal government against certain American citizens. Well, the House Select Committee on Weaponization, led by Representative Jim Jordan, has been digging into various instances of this abuse of government power and yesterday released a letter about another finding related to the Catholic Church. Many Catholic churches, along with dozens of pro-life pregnancy resource centers around the country, have been targeted by pro-abortion zealots over or rather ever since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last June. It would be nice if the FBI would lift a finger to investigate the political violence, but instead the FBI has been targeting the Catholic Church, which is um, thoroughly pro-life. The FBI uh, relied on at least one undercover agent to produce its analysis, according to to, uh, Jordan, and the FBI proposed that its agents engaged in outreach to Catholic parishes to develop sources among the clergy and church leadership to inform on Americans participating in their faith. Uh, We suppose the good news is that at least one FBI agent went to church. Jokes aside, this is serious. Americans attend church to worship and congregate for their spiritual and personal betterment, Jordan explained. Uh, They must be free to exercise their fundamental First Amendment rights without worrying that the FBI might be planting so-called tripwire sources or other informants in their houses of worship. Well, the FBI actively came to to, uh, light, uh, the activity came to light, thanks to a former agent who leaked a memo titled Interest of Racially or Ethnically Motivated Violent Extremism in Radical Traditional Catholic Ideology um, amongst um, radical traditionalist Catholic uh, certainly presents uh, new mitigation opportunities. Now, that's all one one title. It was issued by the FBI's office in Richmond, Virginia in January. The memo relied on information from the left-wing hate-hustling Southern Poverty Law Center to cast aspersions on and surveil certain Catholics based on the theological distinctions. Well, Jordan discovered some information about that, but his uh, Monday letter also scolded the FBI for stonewalling his committee and 
uh, attached subpoena. FBI Director Christopher Wray, he condemned the January memo back in March, saying he was aghast and took steps immediately to withdraw it and remove it from the FBI system. So perhaps he'll now comply with Jordan's investigation. Continue breathing. Don't hold your breath. We want to be careful not to overstate the problem. Thousands of FBI agents are not entrapping unwitting Catholics all across the country. The FBI's acting assistant director of congressional affairs, Christopher Dunham, insisted the FBI is non-anti-Catholic in any way, shape or form and does not target people of any faith because of their religious beliefs in quote. Well, that's probably at least largely true. And there are no doubt many Catholics throughout the ranks of the FBI. Yet if the FBI and others are wondering why people distrust the government and a handful of bad apples are motivated to violence, they might try a little introspection about the weaponization of government. That would include the FBI. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, looking at some of the day's headlines. Coming up in the second hour, James Rosen, author of Scalia, Rise to Greatness. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, artificial intelligence has already taken over the race to unravel space's deep mysteries. And National Security Council spokesman Admiral John Kirby was once again at the White House podium Monday to respond to sensitive breaking news and caused controversy with his response to questions about highly classified defense material being leaked on social media sites this week. Democrats dealt another blow as third lawmaker leaves the party, switching to the GOP within a month. We're talking about in a specific state. Democrats were dealt uh, that blow um, when State Representative Jeremy Lacombe he announced he had left the Democratic Party and would be registering as a Republican. It wasn't immediately clear what prompted his departure. However, he is now the second Louisiana Democrat uh, in less than a month to switch party affiliations and the third nationwide after another state lawmaker in North Carolina did the same. Last month, Louisiana State Representative Francis Thompson gave Republicans in the state house a supermajority after he switched his party affiliation. And earlier this month, North Carolina State Representative Tricia Cotham gave Republicans in the state house a supermajority with her switch as well. House Republicans are setting up a vote next week on legislation aimed at keeping biological males out of girls and women's sports at colleges, universities and public schools across the nation. The Protection of Women and Girls in Sports Act was introduced by Representative Graves Stube, a Florida Republican who um, says it's time to save women's sports from biological males who have no place competing against women. The vote comes as the debate over transgender rights and the effect of those rights on American culture continue to stoke controversy. Well, just last week, NC2A champion swimmer and independent women's forum spokesperson Riley Gaines was assaulted by protesters in San Francisco at San Francisco State University as she uh, argued against transgender female athletes being allowed to compete against biological females. The Wall Street Journal editorial board slammed Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for arguing that the Biden administration should ignore the Texas federal judge's ruling that halted the Food and Drug Administration's approval of the new abortion pill. Well, not so new. Last week, U.S. District Judge Matthew Kasmarek. Uh, ordered the FDA to stop the approval of Mifepristone, citing a lawsuit challenging the drug's safety that's currently being uh, litigated. 
He gave the federal government seven days to seek emergency relief from the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Ocasio-Cortez argued over the weekend, I believe that the Biden administration should ignore this ruling. She said during an interview with CNN that the courts have undermined their own legitimacy and said they do not have the power to enforce their own decisions. She advocated for the president to ignore the courts. The Wall Street Journal editor editor slammed Ocasio-Cortez for her remarks in an editorial titled Democrats for Denying Court Orders. That should be singular, at least. One depressing sign of the political times is that partisans on the left and right are willing to trash political norms and institutions to get their way. The latest example comes from Democrats urging the Biden administration to ignore last week's federal court order concerning the abortion drug Mifepristone. The editors um, wrote, this is dangerous for the rule of law. The editorial board contended that if Biden took such a course of action, conservatives would follow suit once they were in power. Well, Chicago is going to host the 2024 Democratic National Convention. The Democrat Party has selected the city over other finalists like New York City and Atlanta to be the site of the 2024 uh, convention. Democrats thus join Republicans in selecting a Midwestern city to host the convention that will produce a final presidential nominee. Milwaukee will host the Republican National Convention in 2024. Three sources familiar with the uh, DNC, uh, the committee's plans, Uh, shared the news on NBC, adding that President Joe Biden informed Illinois Governor Pritzker before leaving for Ireland. All three cities made aggressive pitches that they represent the future of the Democrat Party, but Chicago and Atlanta were viewed as the front runners. Both argue that the regions they are located in, the Midwest and South respectively, will be critical for Democrats in 2024. Felons are recruiting juveniles to commit crimes on their behalf, taking advantage of softer laws for younger suspects. According to one California sheriff, a juvenile pretty much has um, to almost kill somebody to be placed in custody and remain in custody, says Riverside County Sheriff Chad Bianco. Otherwise, it's a revolving door. They're in one door and out the other, and that emboldens them, end quote. Well, overall, juvenile arrest rates have trended down dramatically since hitting a high in the mid-1990s, according to data from the U.S. Department of Justice. But the number of juvenile arrests on murder charges has increased slightly in recent years. And in 2020, the number of killers under the age of 14 hit its highest point in two decades. Bianco said adult criminals know the law favors juveniles, so they're recruiting them. President Biden has finally ended the COVID-19 national emergency. On Monday, April 10th, the president signed into law House Joint Resolution 7, which terminates the national emergency related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Biden finally ended the national emergency. Three years of ruined lives, closed businesses, fake science, destruction of kids. We'll see what comes up next. On leaked classified Pentagon documents, the White House says this is information that has no business in the public domain. The White House urged journalists not to report on what appears to be leaked Pentagon classified documents circulating online. As mentioned, John Kirby, the coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council, made his case during the White House press briefing on Monday as the U.S. government scrambles to respond to what some suggest Maybe the largest breach of classified secrets since the Edward Snowden saga. The House Judiciary Committee plans to hold a hearing on New York City's handling of crime. The House Judiciary is uh, planning on hosting a field hearing in New York City next week to highlight the rise in crime and how criminals walk free under Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, who's currently working to prosecute former President Donald Trump after upgrading a misdemeanor to a felony 
after the statute of, uh, of limitations has expired. Bragg's office has often worked to reduce felonies involving serious crimes into misdemeanors. Representative Jordan says Alvin Bragg's radical pro-crime anti-victim policies have led to an increase in violent crime in New York City. Next week, the Judiciary Committee will examine these policies during a field hearing in Manhattan. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre is being fact-checked in real time for claiming President Biden has answered an unprecedented number of questions. Reporters at Monday's White House press briefing voiced their disagreement with the press secretary and her claim that the president answers an unprecedented number of shouted questions, showing even mainstream reporters are frustrated with Biden's inaccessibility. The uh, press secretary says it's unprecedented that a president takes as many shouted questions as this president has. Reporters groan in unison at the absurdity of the statement. The Louisville bank shooter was employed by the old National Bank and displayed his pronouns online. Not quite sure what that means, but a gunman opened fire at the bank in downtown Louisville on Monday, killing at least four people, including a close friend of Kentucky Governor Andy Brashear and injuring nine others, authorities said. The gunman was identified as Connor Sturgeon, 23, whom police said was an employee of Old National Bank on East Main Street where the gunfire erupted at 8.38 a.m. before the bank opened. Parts of the attack were live-streamed, police said. Responding officers uh, arrived in three minutes, exchanged gunfire with the gunman, and killed him. ABC reports that uh, the Kentucky governor said, I had a very close friend that didn't make it today. He made an emotional statement on the deadly mass shooting in Louisville that killed at least four. Sebastian Gorka says Louisville's shooter ID'd Connor Sturgeon, a bank employee, proudly displaying his pronouns online. Again, somewhat puzzling. Bud Light's vice president of marketing insulted customers when explaining their woke initiative. The women behind Bud Light's marketing, she said, wanted to update the company's fratty image and reboot its old, its out-of-touch humor with a push for inclusivity days before Bud Light's partnership with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney went viral. Uh, I'm a businesswoman. I had a a really clear job to do when I took over Bud Light. Bud Light Vice President of Marketing Alyssa Heinschried said in a late March episode of the Make Yourself at Home podcast, she said the first woman to take the helm at Bud Light's brand in its 40-year history had a super clear mandate to evolve and elevate the brand, she said. So, recruiting a man dressed as a woman, I'm not quite sure how that worked. Bud Light's marketing vice president um, slanders her customer base as fratty and out of touch as she defends the decision to hire a tranny to promote their products, says Colin Rugg. And D.C. Drano says on March 31st, Anheuser-Busch had a $132.38 billion market cap as of today. It's now $128.4 billion. The woke Bud Light campaign has already shaved off nearly $4 billion in company value. A Ukraine commander says Russia is utilizing scorched earth tactics and Bakhmut, a senior Ukrainian uh, commander, said on Monday that Russian troops are using scorched earth taxes in the uh, tactics, rather, in the embattled city and destroyed buildings and positions with airstrikes and artillery. Ukrainian, Ukrainian forces have hung on for months in the city, the small city in eastern Donetsk. Uh, region where the fiercest fighting of Moscow's full-scale February 2022 invasion has killed thousands of soldiers and been dubbed the meat grinder. 
Moscow's forces have in recent weeks steadily advanced in grinding house-to-house combat, accompanied by heavy artillery and mortar fire, seeking to claim their first significant military victory in months. A a faith-based film with a low budget surpassed $11 million at the box office. For the second weekend in a row, Angel Studios' first theatrical release has been projected to land in the top tier at the weekend box office. Movie audiences across the country have given their approval to His Only Son, the faith-based major motion picture created with a production budget of $250,000. Current projections point to the film ending a strong Easter weekend, showing in fifth or sixth place with $11,044,684 in the cumulative box office. The COVID emergency is finally over, and one Tennessee expulsion has been undone. Two Tennessee Democrat lawmakers were expelled from their seats in the state legislature due to having uh, led an insurrection protest in the state house chamber. One of them was already unsurprisingly reinstated by the Metro Nashville Council, and the other will receive a similar vote by the Shelby County Commission on Wednesday that could potentially reinstate him as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with James Rosen, the book Scalia, Rise to Greatness. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with James Rosen, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, covering 1936 to 1986, before he was a Supreme Court justice. We'll also talk about the uh, collision course that the abortion pill is currently on that might land the decision about whether or not the um, FDA can approve it, and it should be made available to the Supreme Court of the United States. Also, we lost a dear ministry friend uh, here in the Portland metro area. We'll tell you about UGM's executive director, who has gone home to be with Jesus. Well, exactly one year after Portland infamously saw sticking snow in April, the city could be in for a repeat performance with colder temperatures tonight. Brief snow is possible in Portland on Wednesday. Well, the month of April stood out For Portlanders last year, that's thanks to multiple late-in-the-game rounds of snow. And the forecast Wednesday shows a repeat performance could be in store. It's been an extremely rainy week so far, uh, with more than an inch of rain recorded on Monday alone. But lower temperatures Tuesday night will cause snow levels to drop. That's according to Rod Hill, the KGW meteorologist. Well, sticking snow showers could be possible below 1,000 feet for a Midnight until 9 a.m. Wednesday. And although any low-level snow accumulation will likely be light and melt quickly as temperatures rise again late Wednesday morning. Well, the type of precipitation may also vary between uh, different parts of the Portland metro area. Overnight lows in most places will be in the mid to upper 30s. But snow could briefly accumulate in areas with cold pockets. Last year, uh, we saw 1.6 inches of sticking snow on the 11th of April, followed by Uh, 0.3 inches on the 12th. The month also brought a record 5.73 inches of rain over its uh, 30 days last year. And that's another feature of uh, April of this year, 2023. It seems eager to emulate. Portland has seen uh, three inches of rain so far this April. We're at the 11th, uh, which is already more than the uh, region normally gets in the entire month. Um, Thursday and Friday are expected to bring a welcome break from rain. Yay. Although afternoon showers are still possible Thursday and Saturday, rain and colder temperatures will return Sunday 
as a new cold front moves into the region. But the bottom line, brief snow is possible in the Portland area tomorrow. And it was exactly one year after Portland infamously saw sticking snow in April of last year. Also, a federal judge on the 31st of March ruled against two teachers who challenged the Springfield Public Schools' mandatory anti-racist training. Well, two educators uh, in Springfield, Missouri, uh, filed the first-in-the-nation lawsuit on the tw- uh, in August rather, of 21 against a mandatory district-wide anti-racism training that occurred the prior year, alleging that the school district compelled their speech and acted, uh, acted uh, out viewpoint discrimination. Henderson and Lumley, the two teachers, also alleged that district employees were required to complete the training or lose pay and that they were required to commit to equity and being anti-racist educators as a result of the training. Now, the question is what that definition is. In the lawsuit backed by the Southern Legal Foundation, the teachers claim that the district discriminated against them because they, of their views that America should be colorblind. Uh, SLF, rather, is a nonprofit that's filed numerous lawsuits involving school training, critical race theory, and COVID-19 policies. The teachers have appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. This is an effort by a lone agenda-driven federal judge to deny concerned teachers and parents the right to seek redress in court and to protect so-called anti-racist training in Missouri's public schools, the SLF General Counsel Kim Herman said of the defeat. In nearly 50 years of bringing lawsuits under uh, civil rights law, SLF has never faced attorney's fees sanctions from challenging unconstitutional government action at any level. This unprecedented ruling is sure to close the courthouse doors to teachers and parents, the litigation director went on to say. Well, federal district judge Douglas Harpool awarded $313,000 in attorney's fees to the school district defendants, noting that the district should be uh, compensated for the 1,500 hours that its attorney spent defending the suit. But again, there will be an appeal and we'll follow the case. On the TikTok's White House briefing room, in the midst of uh, Congress's holding hearings over whether to ban the Chinese-owned spyware social media app TikTok, the White House is looking to create a new special press briefing room for social media influencers, many of whom are TikTokers. The administration views social media as a road to winning over more young voters, irrespective of their demonstrable social damage and national security threat TikTok holds. Indeed, Team Biden has briefed TikTokers before. Talk about placing party politics over and against protecting the nation. And isn't there supposed to be a separation between uh, the, the people's business in the White House and campaign business? Seems like a legitimate question to me. Well, on the Fed to... Um, uh, Two big tech pipeline Uh, on the related note, the growing number of uh, former federal government employees who now work for big tech companies explains why censorship has increasingly become a problem on those social media platforms. Also, these former federal employees are coming from the intelligence agencies. For example, Google from 2017 to 2022 has hired 130 former CIA, FBI, DHS, and Department of Justice employees. Meta has hired 47, and TikTok has hired 25. Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter and the subsequent release of the Twitter files have demonstrated just how deep the federal government is effectively embedded within big tech. What better way to get privately owned companies to bend to the political desires of Washington establishment than to infiltrate Silicon Valley with former members of the intelligence community? 
The federal investigation into the classified documents leak is heating up, rather, as the U.S. and allies race to contain the fallout. And it's predicted there's more to come. The U.S. says designated Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich as wrongfully detained by Russia, which will allow the U.S. officials to work collaboratively across agencies to secure his release. Hunter Biden's business partners and assistants visited the White House over 80 times when Biden was vice president. And black children are five times more likely to die from gunfire than white children. And Whole Foods is, Foods rather, is shuttering its flagship store in San Francisco just a year after it opened. They were begged to locate there and apparently didn't work out. Uh, Riley Gaines slammed San Francisco State for praising the peaceful protest where the swimmer claims she was assaulted by trans rights activists and she's filing suit. Megan Rapinoe and Sue Bird are among the athletes who signed a letter opposing the Protection of Girls and Women's Sports Act. Of course, they won't have to compete with men. Their careers have ended and therefore they're imposing that uh, imbalance on future female athletes. The North Korean nuclear arsenal nearly doubled since 2017, and Taiwan warned a Chinese misstep could lead to an uncontrollable war, world war outbreak. Well, on this day in history, Abraham Lincoln speaks to a crowd outside the White House saying, we meet this evening not in sorrow, but in gladness of heart. It would be the last public address Lincoln would deliver. 1921, Iowa becomes the first state to impose a cigarette tax at two cents A package. 1945, during World War II, American soldiers liberate the Nazi concentration camp Buchenwald in Germany. 1951, President Harry S. Truman relieves General Douglas MacArthur of his command in the Far East. 1961, former SS officer Adolf Eichmann goes on trial in Israel, charged with crimes against humanity for his role in the Nazi Holocaust. Eichmann would be convicted and executed. 1968, President Lyndon Baines Johnson signed into law the Civil Rights Act of 1968, which includes the Fair Housing Act a week after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. 1970, Apollo 13 with astronauts James Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Jack Swigert, they blast off on its ill-fated mission to the moon. 1980, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission issues regulations specifically prohibiting sexual harassment of workers by supervisors. 2002, U.S. Representative James Traficant, a Democrat from Ohio, is convicted of taking bribes and kickbacks from businessmen and his own staff. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, WikiLeaks' Julian Assange is arrested by uh, London, uh, London police at the Ecuadorian embassy and charged with conspiracy to commit computer intrusion for aiding Chelsea Manning in the cracking of a password to a classified U.S. government computer in 2010. Interesting, this uh, anniversary that has just passed and uh, the fact that there is a concern going on right now about that very thing. Well, coming up in our next hour following news and traffic, Uh, We're going to share a classic interview with James Rosen, his book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1968. You might be surprised to learn that young Scalia had said long before he was even an attorney that one day he would serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. Anyway, James Rosen did a masterful job telling his story leading up to and ending with his uh, appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's coming up 
uh, right at the top of the hour. Uh, we'll also talk about the um, abortion pill on a collision course for the Supreme Court. And we lost a ministry leader here in the Portland metro area, the executive director of Union Gospel Mission. We'll tell you more about that later in the second hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, many of us remember Justice Antonin Scalia for his commitment to the Constitution, his razor sharp wit, or his unlikely friendship with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But little has been written about his pre-Supreme Court years. Well, award-winning reporter James Rosen reveals never-before-reported information in the definitive biography, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. It's the most comprehensive and detailed account of Scalia's monumental accomplishments in the 50 years preceding his appointment to the Supreme Court in 1986. It's a great book. Uh, Scalia remains one of the most consequential figures in American history whose philosophy and judicial opinions defined our legal era. And I'm just delighted to welcome James Rosen. He's the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax. He's a veteran Washington correspondent and best-selling historian. He reported for Fox News for nearly two decades, and his writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and National Review, among other outlets. His previous books include The Strongman, John Mitchell, and The Secrets of Watergate, and Cheney, One-on-One, A Candid Conversation with America's Most controversial statesman. We're delighted to have him join us today to talk about his latest book. James Rosen, thanks for joining us. Georgine, thank you for that very kind introduction. Well, I have to say, I'm I'm honored to have you with us. I've watched your career over many, uh, many years and uh, delighted to have you. Now, this is a book that's very different from uh, much of what we may have read about Scalia. Most of the writing or um, what we've read about him has to do with his tenure as a Supreme Court justice. You spent five years researching for this book. Talk a little bit about the material that you uncovered and why this period of his life. So, Georgine, again, thank you for having me. This book is called Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. It chronicles the first 50 years of Justice Scalia's life. It ends with him taking his seat on the Supreme Court. So if not before then, Georgine, I hope to return with you about two years from now to cover the second volume, which will chronicle uh, the justices' years on the Supreme Court. Uh, What I found was that the two existing biographies of Antonin Scalia that are out there, both of which were published uh, in his lifetime, one of which he cooperated with extensively, the other not at all. Both came to pretty much the same place, which was uh, pretty clear and open in their hostility to Justice Scalia and his conduct and his jurisprudence and his legacy. Uh, So this is the first biography of Antonin Scalia published since his death. It is, as you say, the most comprehensive because whole portions of his career in academia and also his very important service in the Nixon and Ford presidencies Uh, were either overlooked uh, in the previous biographies, given short shrift, or they were cast in the most tendentious light. Uh, And so this is also, as I like to say, the first accurate biography Mm. of Antonin Scalia because it's the first admiring one. You asked about all the different new uh, documents that are are in this book. Uh, There are just whole archives of new documents in this book that were either unavailable to or overlooked by the previous hostile biographers. One example is, Uh, In his seventh term on the Supreme Court in 1992, Justice Scalia asked a female attorney who he had known for some years to visit him in chambers and to conduct there 
a, a secret oral history of his life. Uh, that oral history runs dozens of pages with the justice looking back on his life. It wasn't unsealed until after his death in 2018. This is the first biography to make use of it. Uh, we have his declassified FBI files, which are fascinating, uh, and which went hundreds and hundreds of pages, chiefly because as he rose through the executive and judicial branches, Scalia was subjected to four FBI background checks within 14 years. And as I say in the book, would that all lives paid such close scrutiny would reward with such superlative testimonials, because hundreds of pages of the FBI agents heard nothing but, this is the most intelligent man I've ever met. This is the most honest and incorruptible man I've ever met. This is not just a fit candidate to be a federal judge. This is the perfect candidate to be a federal judge. And then lastly, uh, also, uh, not lastly, really, but the last one I'll mention for now is that everyone's familiar with the famous friendship between Justice mm -hmm. Scalia and uh, liberal justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, this has been celebrated in stage plays and in operas. Uh, I saw a life coach recently suggesting that each of us should go out and find the Ginsburg to our inner Scalia. Uh, <laughs> the fact is that this famous friendship uh, celebrated for its civility among ideological combatants. Uh, didn't really take didn't really take off on the Supreme Court. It began, and really blossomed when the two Ginsburg and Scalia served as judges on one rung below the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. At one time, you had a real murderer's row, Georgine, that consisted of Robert Bork, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Antonin Scalia, Kenneth Starr, Lawrence Silberman, all serving on that that same court at the same time. And I went through Ruth Bader Ginsburg's papers, 220 boxes, at the Library of Congress. And while her Supreme Court papers are closed, and almost all of Justice Scalia's papers are closed, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's papers from her tenure on the D.C. Circuit are open. And so are those of Robert Bork and others who I read on that, on that court. And they have lots of examples of Scalia's handwriting that are so far, and his, his memos and so forth, draft opinions that remain closed in his own papers up at Harvard Law Library. And so this book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, is the first to publish what I call the RBG Nino Papers. These are the handwritten notes, the letters, the correspondence, the memos, the draft opinions that flew back and forth between the chambers of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia when they were both appellate judges uh, from 82 to 86 before both get elevated to the Supreme Court. And not only do these papers find these two legal geniuses squaring off over the fine points of the First Amendment and the other uh, uh, profound legal issues that came before them, but it captures their wit, uh, their affection for each other, and really the birth and the blossoming of this celebrated friendship. And you could read it for the first time in Scalia Rise to Greatness. Mm. Now, you covered the Supreme Court as a reporter, and you knew Justice Scalia personally. Is that correct? Yeah, I was never a Supreme Court correspondent per se, but I covered a number of oral arguments and, uh, and important cases there for sure. And yes, I did know Justice Scalia. Uh, one of the first things I did, Georgine, when I first came to Washington as a young reporter to become a Washington correspondent at the time for Fox News was to write to Justice Scalia and ask for an interview. This commenced between us an unusual and I think very amusing at times that took about two years. Excerpts from that correspondence will appear in the second volume. Um, we also had lunch a couple of times, one-on-one, -on -one, just the two of us at his favorite place, now long gone, called the AV Ristorante Italiano a fairly modest Italian restaurant he'd been going to for 30 years, 40 years at that point. Uh, and we drank wine together, and he made me eat off of his plate. Uh, he was encouraging me to take some vegetables off of his plate. I said, Mr. Justice, I couldn't. Come on, come on, come on. So now I'm shoveling Justice Scalia's 
vegetables into my mouth. This was 1999. <laughs> he even gave me rides back to my office in his car, and I subsequently confirmed Georgine through uh, classmates of his back in the 1950s who had traveled to debate tournaments with him and through Supreme Court clerks well into the 21st century that their experience being a passenger in Antonin Scalia's car was also, as it was for me, slightly scary. When I told one of his clerks that he had driven me back to my office twice, uh, the clerk said to me, God help you. Uh, so I did know him personally. Uh, we weren't the closest of friends, but you get a sense for someone when you have lunch with them twice and you drink wine and you share a meal like that. And uh, he was just so generous to a young reporter that I resolved at that time that someday I would write about this man. The, the substantive discussions we had over lunch, which were fascinating and wide-ranging, will remain off the record. Uh, but the correspondence will be excerpted in the second volume. Once again, we're talking with James Rosen. He has written a fascinating new book that covers a period of Justice Scalia's life that has yet to be covered. Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. So do stay with us. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with James Rosen. He is the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax and is a veteran Washington correspondent and best-selling uh, historian. We're joining, uh, we're talking, I should say, about his latest book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. It's the most comprehensive and detailed account of Scalia's monumental accomplishments in the 50 years preceding his appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1986. And by the way, there is a a, a book coming that will cover that period as well. Now, uh, you um, write about some of the key people you interviewed who gave you previously unpublished insights into Justice Scalia's personal and professional life. Who were some of these key people? Perhaps the most important, uh, one of the most important interviewees in Scalia Rise to Greatness, Georgine, is Father Robert Connor, an Opus Dei priest who was one of three surviving classmates from Scalia's high school, high school graduating class in 1953 that I could locate. Uh, and who's still with us today. He's in his mid to late 80s. He's still actively preaching Opus Dei and blogging about it and, and quite sharp of memory and locution and logic. And when I interviewed him in 2020, the first thing I asked Father Connor was whether he'd ever been interviewed uh, by anybody else, including the FBI, about his lengthy relationship with Justice Scalia, which extended from their uh, freshman year of high school uh, all the way, but for an interregnum, uh, to the day that Scalia died. And, uh, and he said, no, he certainly would remember if anyone had interviewed him, certainly the FBI. So the story he told me, and I'm about to tell you, uh, is never been reported before. Uh, but uh, in 1959, in the, in the summer of 1959, when uh, the two students were now uh, in their early 20s, um, they had been very close, Scalia and Connor. They had uh, played in the uh, basketball together at Xavier High School, a Jesuit military academy where Scalia was valedictorian in 1953. They had played marching band together. Scalia had set Bob Connor up on a date at one point. Uh, Scalia was no stranger to the Connor home. Uh, when Scalia was a, uh, a teenager, he had frequently appeared on radio and television programs of the 1950s that were geared towards students, quiz programs, debate programs. And Connor's own dad used to say to him when, when Bob Connor missed one of these appearances, oh, you should have seen it. Scalia really gave it to him this week. So Antonin <laughs> Scalia had fans via electronic media as a teenager in the early 1950s. Come the summer of 1959, they don't see each other that much, but they're friends still. 
And uh, Bob Connor makes a decision that he's going to drop out of med school and go study Opus Dei in Rome. Mrs. Connor, his mother, is distraught, thinking that her son is throwing his future away. So she summons to the Connor home on Downey Road on the south side of the street in Queens uh, in that summer of 1959, two men whom she thought might be able to talk sense into her son. One was a Jesuit priest named Father Morrison who showed up. And then as Father Connor recounted this to me, um, again, this, is, this story has never been told anywhere else. He was stunned when he was sitting in the upstairs bedroom of his brother, uh, Jim Connor, and in walks his friend Nino Scalia. And the first thing Scalia says to him is, what are you doing? Scalia was 22 years old. He had finished his second year at Harvard Law. And he says to his friend Bob Connor, what are you doing? And Connor says, I'm going to go to Rome and I'm going to study Opus Dei. And I asked Father Connor, devout Catholic that he was, did Scalia seem to have some knowledge of what Opus Dei was? And he told me, I explained to him that it is that Opus Dei, we study these, we find the sanctity in everyday things, in everyday life. Scalia nodded and said, sounds good to me. And then again, this has never been reported before until this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness. Uh, Father Bob Connor says to Scalia, what are you doing? And Scalia answers, I'm going to the White House. And Connor says, how are you going to do that? Oh, excuse me, I've messed it up. He says, I'm going to the Supreme Court. And Connor says, how are you going to do that? And Scalia mentioned that he had a law firm job lined up in Ohio. And, and Father Connor couldn't bring the name of it to him to, in the interview. He said, James, it was a law firm in Ohio. I said, yes, Jones Day, which in fact was where Scalia spent his first six years practicing in the private sector um, after Harvard Law. He says, yes, that was it, Jones Day. He told me, Jones Day has a Washington office. I will be sent to Washington, and I will rise. I said, did, it, did, you, did you consider it fanciful or comical when Scalia said, I'm going to the Supreme Court? He said, no, no, Nino was driven. I said, did you consider that it, he felt it as a divine calling? He said, I bet. And the way Father Connor described it to me was, it was a convergence of two transcendent moments, almost like a shared epiphany, where the two friends reconnect, and one says to the other, what are you doing? And he says, I'm going to religion. And the other says back to him, to Scalia, what are you doing? He says, I'm going to the Supreme Court. I will be sent to Washington, and I will rise. And I really believe that this interview with this unimpeachable witness, Father Connor, uh, an ordained Opus Dei priest since 1964, uh, is decisive on this point of when Antonin Scalia first began to harbor within the ambition to serve on the Supreme Court. Uh, Scalia's defenders, his most ardent defenders, his, uh, his family, his clerks, others in academia, have always been leery of attributing this ambition to Scalia too soon in life because they feel that it might contribute to a false narrative that's been promulgated in the previous biographies that I call the careerist narrative, the idea that Scalia's rise to the Supreme Court was not the product of his deep Catholic faith, uh, his uh, extraordinary upbringing, uh, his, his industry, and his genius, but rather was the result of him tailoring his activities and his means to curry favor with more powerful people who could aid his rise. The fact is that there are some people, Georgine, who are gifted and blessed early in life to know where they want to go. Mm -hmm. Charles Schulz, the creator of Peanuts, uh, has said that he knew that by the age of five that he wanted to as a cartoonist. Antonin Scalia understood early on, we now know from Father Connor, uh, what the Supreme Court was and why he belonged there. And all of us, including those closest to Scalia, his most ardent defenders, are better off that he did. Absolutely. Justice Scalia was one of the country's most prominent Catholics. Uh, he was the product of a Jesuit education. 
Um, how did his faith contribute to his rise? And perhaps you've answered that question in part just by sharing that story. No, it's a great question. And again, this being the first admiring biography of Antonin Scalia, the first that isn't out to tear him down, uh, the first that starts from the point of view that he was a profoundly important and, and great American. Uh, this, is the, this book is the most uh, detailed and comprehensive look at his Catholic faith uh, and how it shaped him. Uh, and so, yes, he was valedictorian at Xavier High School, the unusual hybrid of a Jesuit private school and a military academy. Then he was uh, valedictorian again of another Jesuit institution, Georgetown University. Uh, and the, the, we have to note the influence of his parents, of course. His father was an immigrant who came to this country in 1920 not speaking English and with only $400 in his pocket. And he made of himself a renowned professor of Romance languages. Scalia's mother was herself the daughter of Italian immigrants, and she became a schoolteacher. So from the liturgy of the Catholic Church and its emphasis on uh, immutable, inviolable sacred texts, and from his father's influence, his father having written about the perils uh, for the original meaning of a given text when it is translated or interpreted, um, perhaps by a dishonest translator or interpreter, into a new language. And then from his mother, who, uh, was an, who emphasized in her own way a, a veneration for the classics and grammar and all the things that we note from Scalia's opinions, all these influences uh, instilled in Antonin Scalia a profound reverence for the original meaning of texts, particularly sacred texts. And he carried that forward with him uh, into his career as a judge and then a justice of the Supreme Court. At the same time, Scalia bristled when anyone ever suggested uh, that he tried to graft his Catholicism into his opinions. Said his modest role as a judge or a justice on the Supreme Court was simply to find the original meaning of the Constitution or a given statute and apply it, and to use the text of that constitutional provision or, or statute as the best way to to divine the original meaning. Uh, and he would never think of uh, of of um, intervening in that process by trying to write Catholicism into the application of the law. He used to say there's no such thing as a Catholic hamburger. He said the closest we could come to that would be a hamburger that is made perfectly. <laughs> We're talking with James Rosen. He is the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, and he is the author of the uh, a book on Justice Scalia that is unlike any book you have seen to date. Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. Quick break. We'll be back to uh, continue our conversation with James Rosen. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with James Rosen. He is the author of a new book on Justice Scalia that you must read. Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. Uh, Rosen is the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, Max rather, and is a veteran Washington correspondent and best-selling historian. This is a fascinating book because it covers the period of Justice Scalia's life before he became a justice on the Supreme Court. What is Justice Scalia's legacy in terms of the law and American life? Because I don't think it can be overstated how significant his role was and continues to be um, in uh, U.S. jurisprudence. It's a great question, Georgine. And the readers of Scalia Rise to Greatness will quickly find that this is written for all readers. It's not just for lawyers, but it does try to make the concepts 
uh, the legal concept that Scalia championed, uh, digestible. Uh, and that was something that was very important to him, too, that his opinions should be ones that could be read by non-lawyers. Uh, until Scalia came along, there prevailed in the law a liberal notion called the living constitution, the idea that the constitution and its meaning was somewhat elastic and, and could expand uh, to take account of modern phenomena that the founders could never have invented, such as the Internet or nuclear weapons, uh, and to, uh, to imbue uh, the Constitution with this living quality, this expansive quality, liberal judges and justices would look beyond the text of the law, and they would cite the legislative intent behind the law. What was said in all those House and Senate floor debates what was printed in those committee reports that were generated as a bill snaked its way through the process. Scalia stood athwart all of that, uh, and he championed a concept called originalism. His idea was that uh, we should always adhere, judges, when they are engaged in their central business, which is interpreting the meaning of the Constitution or statutes passed 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 150 years ago, that judges should not expand the meaning of those documents, those legal texts, uh, to account for new, new phenomena. If you want to account for new phenomena, Scalia argued, you should go to Congress and pass a law that deals with nuclear weapons or the Internet. Um, to uh, assign new meaning, some expansive new meaning to an existing text of, or legal text like the Constitution or a statute, uh, Scalia argued was in essence to go back in time and rob a previous generation of its actual democratic rights and self-governance. Uh, let's imagine that right now listening to us, there's somebody who very much approved of, of a measure that President Biden signed into law last year. Let's take the, the protections for same-sex marriage. Um, how would those who support the enactment of that law as it was written feel if 10 years from now or 50 years from now a judge unelected could come along and say, well, actually that law should mean this, something larger or more expansive or something different from what it meant in the time? Uh, and the best way to divine the original meaning of a constitutional provision or statute, Scalia said, was just to look at the text, not the ephemera of the legislative process or what somebody said on the Senate floor or in a committee report, which nobody ever voted on. What they, the, the legislative intent was, was the text of the law that they voted on and that a president signed. These two concepts of original and considered revolutionary when Scalia introduced them. By the time he died, Georgine, no to figure than the Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, uh, an appointee of Barack Obama, uh, stated that as a result of Scalia's revolution, so to speak, quote, we are all originalists now. And this really does have influence on every area of American life because of the way that Scalia changed how lawyers uh, approach the law, argue the law, and how judges and justices decide the law, and even how lawmakers write the law. Really quite remarkable. You mentioned uh, Bork earlier. Uh, can you talk a little bit about their relationship and how Scalia really was the beneficiary of the the essential lynching that, that Bork received in his confirmation process? Well, the two men were great friends. Their families were friends. Gene Scalia, the, the justice's son, who's a prominent attorney in his own right, former Trump cabinet official, told me that one time when he was growing up uh, and the Scalias had had some folks over their, their house, when everyone left, uh, his dad, Antonin Scalia, wheeled around and said to Gene, this is why you study and work hard in school, so you can grow up and you can have friends like Bob Bork. But they just thought the world of each other. Um, their, their relationship suffered a rift. In 1984, when both were judges on the Court of Appeals, and Bork wrote an opinion about the First Amendment that called for judges to apply some evolution 
to the principles of the First Amendment to take account of modern phenomena in libel law, and uh, that this should happen even if it tended to admit into the process a certain measure of judicial selectivity uh, and, and individual judicial uh, preference. And this was like heresy to Scalia's ears. Uh, this was sounding a lot like the imperial judiciary that he and Bork had spent years denouncing. And so Scalia wrote a, an opinion, a concurrence, just to take Bork. And it caused a rift between them. Bork still was bitter about this even as late as 1989 after politics and fate had settled with cruel finality the rivalry between them as to who was going to be on the Supreme Court. Uh, and, uh, and a book published in 1989, uh, Bork still complained about Scalia's concurrence in that opinion in that case. Uh, and just as that cracks were forming in, in Scalia's bond with Bob Bork, um, his, his friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg began to blossom. I'm very proud that Robert Bork Jr. posted on Facebook that he's read the book and that uh, his father figures prominently in it and that he learned from the book things about his father's relationship with Scalia that even he didn't know. Uh, that means a lot to me. Oh, absolutely. Do you think um, Justice Scalia could have been uh, successfully nominated for the Supreme Court if he were uh, brought forward today? You know, having laid out his theory of originalism and how latter-day sensibility should never be grafted onto existing works or canons of work, um, I'm going to pass on an opportunity <laughs> uh, to place Antonin Scalia in, uh, in 2023. I would like to note, though, just because we haven't gotten to it, and I know our time is running short, uh, you ask about the legacy of Antonin Scalia. It's not just from his time as a judge. He worked in the Nixon and Ford administrations. In the Nixon administration in 1971, Scalia was hired in his 30s to serve as the general counsel to a brand-new agency called the White House Office of Telecommunications Policy. And uh, there was a recognition that telecom was the future and that the federal policy on it was spread across so many agencies it needed to be brought under administrative control of the White House. Uh, in, and I'm the first researcher, and you'll this in Scalia Rise to Greatness, to get a hold of all of Antonin Scalia's papers from that time in the early 70s when he was working on telecom issues. And he wrote one paper called The Society in which he outright predicted the Internet. He talked about how users of remote terminals would have access to hundreds of TV channels, would do their banking from the same portal, uh, and would have, be able to retrieve information from just about any library in the world. He also predicted the attendant privacy concerns that would come with it. And what Scalia and the man who hired him, Tom Whitehead, who was the first director of this agency and a genius in his own right, what they did was they introduced the free market principles of competition into the launching of domestic space satellites, which previously had only been done by one company called ComSat. And after they got done with their so-called open skies policy, any company with the requisite technical prowess and capital reserves could launch a domestic space satellite. This is really what turbocharged the telecom revolution that grew into what we have today. Uh, and then in the Ford administration, Scalia was an assistant attorney general. At that time, the post-Watergate era, there were reckless and greedy ideas flying in every direction uh, from Democrats in Congress and liberal news media to try to emasculate the presidency after Watergate. And Scalia and a few other conscientious conservative lawyers of the time uh, understood that after Watergate and its subsidiary scandals faded, the country would still need a strong executive for the future. Scalia helped preserve those powers, and he also worked a lot on classified matters, including covert operations, which at a certain point after Watergate, they started running for approval. All covert operations they wanted to conduct passed the Assistant General for the Office of Legal Counsel, who was Antonin Scalia. 
And one story told in this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, just out now, never told before, is that on the afternoon of April 30, 1975, the Ford White House called up Antonin Scalia and said, we will need a legal opinion from you uh, within a few hours' time as to whether it is lawful under the War Powers Act for us to land our helicopters, the military's helicopters, on the U.S. Embassy in Saigon and evacuate our personnel as Saigon fell. That's April 30, 1975. Scalia gave the, lawful, the, the opinion that it was lawful. But as he said, and this is published here in Scalia Rise to Greatness for the first time, I wondered to myself, would they have called off the operation on advice of counsel if I hadn't said it was lawful? What is this world coming to? Mm. Mm. Well, you have unearthed previously unpublished writing from every phase of Scalia's career and interviewed his family, classmates, students, government colleagues, priests, poker buddies, hunting companions, <laughs> fellow jurists. Uh, you corresponded, as you mentioned earlier, and dined with the justice. You even braved the streets of D.C. as a nervous passenger in his uh, famously speedy BMW. And the result is a masterly account that reads like a novel and it sheds new light on the life, the mind, the career, faith, and legacy of the man whom family and friends called Nino. Thank you for the work that you have done and for taking the time to introduce this great work to our listeners. I would encourage them to uh, take advantage of the opportunity to learn about the the real Scalia prior to his uh, position on the U.S. Supreme Court. The book is just released, published by Regnery, and I would encourage you to to pick it up. Jane uh, Rosen, thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, you've been very kind to me. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Again, the book, Scalia. Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. A couple of things I wanted to mention. One is that coll- that collision between the abortion pill uh, being uh, made available under FDA approval or not. Well, there are two different federal court cases. They've yielded opposite results, and that could have huge ramifications for abortion post Roe versus Wade. Some 61 percent of abortions performed, maybe performed isn't even the right word, abortions in the country are now chemical abortions. Well, first, a federal judge based in the state of Washington ruled in favor of 17 Democrat attorneys general who wanted to remove federal restrictions on the use of mifepristone in the state of Washington versus FDA, claiming that the drug was far safer than continuing a pregnancy, which is an extraordinary uh, claim. Well, on the other hand, a Texas federal judge delivered a decision that completely overruled the Food and Drug Administration's 23-year-old approval of the abortion pill, claiming in his decision on Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus FDA that the FDA's stated reason for approving the drug for serious or life-threatening illness ignores the fact that pregnancy isn't an illness, but a natural part of a woman's life. Well, in this situation, the usual resolution is a a date with the Supreme Court. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves by suggesting that's going to happen, say, tomorrow. Well, the group of Democrats being uh, led by the state of Washington got their desired ruling from U.S. District Judge uh, Thomas Rice, no relation, and appointee of Barack Obama. Now, these uh, they're looking to continue the FDA's history of easing access to the abortion pill, a trend well covered by the uh, uh, by the pro-life community over the years. Uh, one revelation is that um, drug-induced abortions now 
comprise the majority of all abortions, making this debate all the more important. However, Rice's ruling would only affect the states that sued, all with Democrat AGs. Regardless, Democrats are hoping to put these pills on uh, your store shelves. Uh, The push, and of course in Oregon and Washington, that will and has been the case. The push to dramatically increase wide availability of the abortion pill, one accelerated even in recent years because of the pandemic, has come at the cost of sepsis, hemorrhage, hundreds of life-threatening situations, and at least 20 deaths. Um, more if you include the children whose lives ended because of the administration of the pill. From a responsible perspective, shouldn't this be something we care about? Well, we should care, and that may um, may have played into the Texas ruling that got uh, far more news coverage. Donald Trump appointed U.S. District Judge Matthew uh, Kazmarek, or something like that, dropped a 67-page decision revoking the initial FDA approval, which he said exceeded its authority by issuing an approval based on a premise that the drug was intended to treat a life-threatening disease, a definition that a normal pregnancy doesn't fit. Well, the drug doesn't provide a meaningful therapeutic benefit, the judge went on to say. As part of the ruling, he allowed a seven-day stay to allow the government to appeal to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and it... um, Uh, obliged uh, them to do so today. Well, praising the uh, decision out of Texas for its straight talk, political analyst Margot Cleveland noted, calling an unborn human an unborn human immediately triggered abortion activists. But as the judge explained in the footnote, such terminology is scientifically correct. Of course, these days that doesn't really matter. Whereas lawyers and courts often use the word fetus or Uh, to inaccurately identify unborn humans in unscientific ways. The word fetus refers to a specific gestational stage of development as opposed to the zygote, the blastist, um, or embryo stages. And because the FDA's approval of the abortion drug applies at multiple gestational stages, the word fetus would be inaccurate. Well, others, however, were not so charitable. The editorial board at the Wall Street Journal chastised both decisions, pointing out that the Supreme Court Dobbs decision had already intended to move the abortion question to the states. But both judges and plaintiffs were trying to federalize it again. They also said both decisions made several legal leaps and questionable claims. The Texas ruling also drew out two unlikely congressional allies. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez certainly fits the definition of a usual suspect, and she was front and center leading the condemnation of the Texas judge's decision. She pontificated to all the media who would listen, and they all do. I believe the Biden administration should ignore this ruling. Team Biden already has plenty of practice ignoring the rule of law. So this wouldn't be much of a stretch. But in a separate interview, GOP Congressman Nancy Uh, Nancy Mace told CNN's Caitlin Collins, I agree with ignoring the Texas ruling at this point, but there are other lawsuits that are happening in other states over this issue. She added, this is an FDA approved drug. I support the usage of FDA approved drugs, even if we might disagree. It's not up to us as legislators to decide or even as a court system. Well, Mace also presumed the vast majority of Americans would disagree with the court's decision and argued that Republicans weren't showing compassion toward women. I'm not sure if she meant in utero or those carrying unborn women. Well, that in a nutshell is the um, the fear the established uh, establishment GOP uh, has over this um, upcoming fight. Well, since this year's Supreme Court term is almost completed, it's likely this fight would be placed on next year's docket and decided right smack in the middle of the 2024 campaign. Well, given the perceived effect of the Dobbs decision and the 2022 midterms, 
It's no wonder that Democrats are salivating and working to politicize the court's ruling as much as possible, um, while Republicans have nightmare visions of suburban women peeling their support away from the GOP over this ruling. Hot in the middle, of course, is always the unborn. And this decision will have a direct impact on their future or their, the absence of a future. Well, switching gears just a bit, I received an email earlier today that really broke my heart. It came from the Union Gospel Mission. It was a message from the board of directors. And the headline, we lost a friend. We are deeply saddened to announce that Jason Christensen, our executive director, died March 28th after a nearly two-year battle with cancer. Jason was a friend and a colleague, and we miss him greatly. He is survived by his two daughters, his mother and brother. He loved Portland. He loved being at the mission. And we are grateful to God for his life and service. Though we're saddened over uh, this loss, we know that Jason put his faith in Christ and passed into heaven where there is no more suffering and pain. Kevin Campbell, the Union Gospel Mission Finance Director, is serving as acting executive director while a search is made for the new executive director. And they ask that we would pray for Jason's daughters and his extended family and pray that God leads the Union Gospel Mission um, to serve well in his absence and to identify the next executive director. It was only two years ago. In fact, it was April 24th that Jason Christensen joined the Union Gospel Mission as the new executive director. In that role, he was leading the effort to build a new home for um, uh, for life change for women and children and their children. That was headed up by Bill Russell, the um, executive director emeritus. Well, Jason brought two decades of experience working with vulnerable populations, the homeless and substance addicted. He joined uh, UGM. Uh, it, that uh, it was positioned for growth and to serve an expanded mission field. Jason was a believer, and he believed that the most transformative impact on a person's recovery is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that relationship has now yielded him personal audience with the king himself. So we say thank you for your service here in the Portland metro area. Short-lived, but your life was spent serving others well. Jason Christensen has gone home to be with Jesus. We're out of time. I want to thank James Blend for uh, producing today's program and David King for engineering. Thanks for listening and have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.